Let me just read the last bit of what uh, uh, Mary read to us. Verse 24, to remind ourselves. His conclusion this week is, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. But without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering up and storing wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. But this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Lord, we ask that you will help us to understand your word, that you will help us to see how relevant and vital it is for us today, that you will give us the clarity of thought, responsive hearts, and Lord, the courage and uh, will to respond to what uh, you tell us in your word. Please, Lord, we ask, come amongst us, be with us each as an individual and with us corporately as your gathered people. Pour out your grace on us. Help us to lead lives that really are meaningful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of you will know that I was... Uh, brought up in the countryside, and when I was young, I always used to envy the, the animals and the birds. The birds that uh, flew so effortlessly in the, in the sunshine, the, uh, the farm dog which slept so peacefully on the doorstep. Uh, at first, that envy was focused on the fact that I had to go to school, which seemed terribly unfair when um, uh, all the rest of the animal kingdom seemed to uh, lead such a more, much a more carefree life. But then it broadened into, into a wider sense of, of the glorious simplicity of just, just, just living. Not having to fret about all the things that the adult world seemed to fret about. And as I grew up, I myself started to fret about too. I can remember actually uh, uh, reading Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book stories and being fascinated by little Mowgli who was raised by wolves and lived such a life. And then, of course, the Disney film came out, didn't it? I've always loved Baloo's song, The Bare Necessities. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. Such an attractive picture, isn't it? found myself at, the, uh, uh, at that time longing for Baloo's simple, easy-going life, and yet at the same time sensing it wouldn't satisfy me. I've always actually had a strong desire to know, to understand, as human beings often have. One of my earliest memories is of having my father who'd endured a, a whole morning of questions, turning on me rather angrily, I may have told you this one before, and saying to me, why do you keep asking why? I, I, I still remember being completely bemused. Doesn't everybody just ask why about everything? 
As I grew up, I actually started to realize that that questioning, that, that searching, can be the cause of an enormous amount of heartache. The life of the birds in the air and the dog by the fireside, the life advocated by Baloo the bear, is actually very, very attractive. And that's the point that our teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, has got to in his search for pleasure and delight and meaning in his life. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we saw how he set out to find meaning and satisfaction by by pursuing pleasure. Every appetite that he had, he indulged to the full without limit. Alcohol, um, uh, changing rooms, as we've done here, by the way, isn't it lovely? Um, Music, sex, all of those things. He chased with, the, with the, all the vigour he could master. And throughout this, 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 this orgy of self-indulgence, though, he made sure he kept thinking, he kept asking questions, he kept searching. As he put it, his mind was still guided with wisdom, his wisdom stayed with him. But that determination to think while he pursued all those pleasures, was actually his downfall. Tells us that in verse 11 of chapter 2, at the end of that section, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So, he says, perhaps my problem is that I think too much. Perhaps I should give up this pursuit of wisdom as a bad job. That's the thought that dominates the rest of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that we're going to look at this morning. From verse 12 onwards, his mind is dominated by the possibility that his fundamental problem may be that he just thinks too much. But his conclusion is very, very important. He states it right at the beginning. We cannot stop thinking. He considers two options in uh, in verse 12. I turn my mind, my thoughts, to consider wisdom, he says. And also, madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? There are plenty of people who who advocate what the teacher calls madness and folly. In fact, uh, he himself says elsewhere that folly is not not as bad as some some mate would like to claim. He says it has its good points. At least you have a good time for a while. We wholeheartedly embrace madness and folly and don't look back. Then we can, for a while at least, escape those, those inhibiting feelings of guilt, those black quagmires of meaningless that threaten, this, that, 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 that threaten to uh, suck us down. All of us have met uh, people who have embraced folly as he considers doing here, haven't we? And at their best, actually, those people are 
delightful, happy-go-lucky people who are a pleasure to be with. They're just out for a good time. But the human spirit longs for more. As he considers the uh, options of, 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 of uh, wisdom or madness and folly, he says something which is actually a bit difficult to interpret. What the second half of verse 12 means is not entirely clear, but probably he's saying effectively, how could I escape what Solomon uh, pursued? Solomon pursued with all his uh, 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 wisdom, with all his heart. And he says, what, what, what more can I do than to pursue the same uh, uh, path that Solom Solomon went down? It just seems inescapable to me that I need to pursue wisdom. I need to think carefully about this world. Wisdom draws me with a magnet because, as he says in verse 11, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. That, that um, uh, foolish, happy-go-lucky, mad person he says, actually walks through life like a person stumbling in a darkened room. Sooner or late, they, later, they always trip, they always stumble, they always hurt themselves, and they often hurt other people too. I wonder whether you've noticed, happy-go-lucky people always tend to be young, don't they? Because as they get older, frankly, they either learn wisdom or they become miserable. We need eyes in our heads. We need the light. We need to ask searching questions about our lives or we are lost without a map. Now that's a lesson, first of all, that we need to uh, embrace very consciously and very clearly because today, in the culture that we live in, there is a great discouragement of careful, critical thought about how to live our lives. The search for wisdom about life has, become, has given way to just an acknowledgement that there are all sorts of opinions about how you should live your life, all sorts of different value systems that people can have. And how could we possibly criticise one against the other? In the 1980s, um, Alan Bloom blew the whistle on that sort of um, attitude in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. He showed that actually our desire to be open, our desire always to be tolerant, always to be accepting other people's views, actually closes our minds off. Because it stops us making any, any sort of careful judgments about our life at all. A perpetually open mind is a useless one. Because our mind is like our mouth. We must be able to open it or we starve, but a perpetually open mouth can never chew. You have to live on the most uh, disgusting, liquidized gruel. So too, with a perpetually open mind, 
Now, we must open our minds, but then we must chew on what we receive. Neil Postman, uh, in, his, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, actually showed how, how television encourages us to be, to be simple browsers of entertainment and facts. We sort of drift through the flotsam of the television channels, channels like great open-mouthed basking sharks. We ingest massive amounts of information, but we never chew on any of it. And because we do that, we actually rob ourselves of the ability to make careful judgments about what is good and what is not good in this world. When we stop thinking, the lights go out, and then we start fumbling and falling, or even worse. Let me say to you, though, being wise is not the same as being academic. The world is full, frankly, of academics who are fools. In fact, one of the scourges of our, of our modern world is intellectuals who are determined to conceal wisdom and truth. Paul uh, Johnson wrote a very entertaining book called Intellectuals. It chronicled the seedy private lives, the deliberate deceptions, the gross inconsistencies of many men and women who have actually been most influential in shaping modern thought. People like uh, um, Karl Marx, like the great um, French philosopher Rousseau, like uh, uh, um, more modern figures, like uh, Kenneth Tynan in the arts world. All of them. Deeply flawed in their personalities. The verdict of Johnson is, beware intellectuals. And wise people may or may not be academic. The Bible doesn't, uh, is not talking about academic ability when it talks about wisdom. Some of the wisest people that we have seen in this church had no academic qualifications at all, but they could think. They opened their minds to this world and they chewed on what they discovered and they came to clear wise conclusions. If we're going to find any satisfaction in life then, we must think. In my job I deal with people a great deal and again and again I see what can only be described as horrendous folly. Again and again I find myself weeping over the thoughtless recklessness of the people that I meet. You know, I didn't think just dabbling in drugs would cause this much trouble. I read an article that said that unhappy parents make unhappy children, so I left my spouse. I didn't think it would make us all so miserable. I've always been a heavy drinker. I didn't think it would cause any problems. I thought it was enough if you just loved the person to sleep with them. I didn't realize how much hurt there was if I wasn't committed to them in marriage. The folly of the world that we live in is frightening because people just will not think. We cannot avoid it says our teacher, we must think. Verse 14, the wise man has eyes in his head, 
while the fool walks in darkness. But. There's always a but in Ecclesiastes. You'll see that again and again as we go through. But. But, he says, thinking leads to despair. More precisely, our realization of death makes us realize how futile life is. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. There's a terrible, relentless logic in this book. In verses 14 to 16, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the teacher says, first of all, that death robs us of of, of significance or of, of reputation, of that sense of need we have to, to, to be high in the esteem of others. Verse 15, Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. The wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days to come both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. I've actually been to a lot of funerals. One of the commonest things that people say at funeral is that the deceased lives on in our hearts and minds. But for how long? The truth is that the memory of the dead fades very, very fast. One of the uh, deeply painful things about the death of a loved one is actually that we soon find it hard to remember their face. And does our great wisdom change that? Well, barely. Perhaps the very wise are remembered a little longer, but then so are the very foolish. And neither of them are remembered long. Dying, you know, is like sinking into the sea. The waters close over you instantly. And there is no trace. Now a few people in this church, just a few, treasure the memory of uh, uh, great saints who worshipped in this church in years gone by. And we owe a lot to them. On some of the chairs... At the front here, there are, uh, there are plaques commemorating some of them. Their memory is precious to some of us here, but not many. And it won't be long before it's none who remember them. Just a decade or two. They are meaningless names already to most of us. And you and I will follow into their oblivion soon. That's the bitter truth that the teacher contemplates. All the significance, all the reputation, all the love and respect which we enjoyed in our lives is dust. 
A wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Our death then robs us of our reputation, our significance. Our death as well robs us of any purpose to our lives. What use is there, he says then, in all this hard work that we do all of our lives? I hated life, he says, verse 17, because the work that is done under the sun is grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Perhaps there is some consolation then in thinking that the next generation will inherit the benefit of our achievements. But over that there is always this nagging question. Will they use it wisely? Verse 19. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. A man may work, a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. The truth is, we have no control over how our achievements are used. None at all. Many of the uh, uh, dedicated scientists who worked in the, uh, in the 1930s and uh, discovered nuclear fission were subsequently absolutely horrified by the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, by the reckless mismanagement that uh, uh, led to Chernobyl, by the economic miscalculations that have left us with a, the massive decommissioning costs of nuclear power I never thought it would lead to such misery. They, by and large, were good, upright people. But they had no control over how their discoveries were used. Who knows what the scientists today will think as they contemplate how their discoveries in genetics or uh, 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 other fields of science have been used subsequently. And what about our personal wealth? What about those more personal things that we work for? Many of us will leave behind uh, a property amounting to years and years of our labor. To whom? For what purpose? I know of an old lady in this city who had to go into a home. She left her nice house empty. Her adult grandson learned about that. He broke in and he began to use it as a squat and a place to deal drugs. Verse 22. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his day, days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Verse 
We must think, says the teacher. We cannot avoid it or we're just wandering around in the dark, falling into traps. But when we think, he says, we're met with this terrible spectre of our death, which robs us of all reputation, robs us of any ultimate purpose in our lives and leaves us with despair. Woody Allen, in an, in an interview with uh, the magazine Esquire, once said, the fundamental thing behind all motivation, all activity, is the constant struggle against annihilation, against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments Meaningless. So, says our author, perhaps the solution is a fudge. Perhaps we should think, but not too much. Verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? That phrase, a man can do nothing better, comes, comes up uh, several times in this book, and it's always a sigh of resignation. Perhaps he's saying there is no way out of this. Perhaps Baloo's solution in the Jungle Book is the only one that makes sense. Look for the bare necessities, the bare necessities, simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. We can tag on to that, a vague belief in God if we like. We can seek just enough wisdom and knowledge to lead a, a successful life. The man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. And perhaps we can just hope that common justice does work itself out so that good prospers and bad doesn't. But to the sinner, he says, he gives the task of gathering up and storing wealth to, to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Perhaps this is the only solution that there is. Think a little bit, not too much and hope for the best. That is the solution of a very large proportion of the po population. It says, effectively, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to make sure I lead a sensible life. I'm going to have uh, maintained some sort of vague belief in God that he will give me happiness after all, isn't he? A good and kind God. But it's a fudge. There actually may be more cynicism in these uh, verses I just read, um, especially in verse 26, than the NIV displays. It may be not the sinner there in verse 26 who's given the task of storing up wealth only to hand it over. It may be actually just the person who displeases God. In other words, one person pleases God and receives happiness. Another person displeases God and labours all their life for nothing because it's given to the one who pleases God. But hey, how do I know the difference? Perhaps I just have to accept that there's nothing better than that. What a futile world this is. That's why he concludes... This meditation, this too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. 
See what he's done? He has boxed us in on every side, this teacher. He has shut us in a room, and as we rush to each, uh, uh, towards each door that seemed to be ajar and seemed to be open, just as we've got there, he slammed it in our face. Perhaps we should stop thinking too much about life. No, we can't stop thinking, he says. That's darkness, slam. Perhaps then as we uh, think about life and learn some wisdom, we will find some happiness. No, there is no happiness because there's death always looming over you, slam. Goes the door. Perhaps we should think just enough, but not too much. And hope for the best. No, that will never satisfy you. Slam goes the last door. There is no way out. Where can we go? Well, as we've seen the last two weeks, our author barely goes anywhere. As the book goes on, he will start to get uh, some more insights, but not here. His conclusion is very firmly, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We have to go to the New Testament, to Jesus, to start finding answers. Because the glory of what Jesus teaches and what Jesus demonstrates and assures us of is that Jesus blows the walls of that prison completely apart. Because Jesus says there is life beyond death. There is resurrection life. He assured us of it in his teaching and he proved it when he rose from the dead to eternal life. And he says, when you can see life with that perspective, suddenly, actually, wisdom becomes a joy. Because with wisdom that sees eternal life, suddenly you don't much worry about your reputation with other people. What does it matter? what people who were here today and gone tomorrow think. He is absolutely uh, 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 clear, in fact, that the person who really sets out to lead a good life will meet as much opposition as praise. Woe to you, he said in Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That is how their fathers treated the false prophets. And he says there is only one place where it matters. What, uh, uh, what is thought of us. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when people insult you, persecutely, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. They don't matter. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's where we should worry about our reputation. That's where we should worry about our significance. Because if there is no place beyond death, we are to be pitied more than all men. And in that place there is only one person's opinion who really matters. The opinion of the master who says, well done, good and faithful servant.
Isn't that incredibly liberating? If we're worried about people's opinion of us uh, in this life, then two things happen. First of all, we will become dominated by their opinion of us. We will actually become someone who we aren't really. Someone uh, obsessed and oppressed by what other people think. And then as we get older, we will become bitter and disappointed because they will never think as much of us as we'd like them to. Both of those are blown away by Jesus. Do not worry about the fact that you will be forgotten after your death. Do not worry about the fact that people won't think much of you in this life. Worry only about the verdict of the Master. And if you live your life for his verdict, your life will actually be leading to the crown as you die, not the pit. And what about all that um, work that we do that uh, then is just uh, passed on to the, gener- to the next generation? Well, we saw last, uh, last week, didn't we? Jesus says that is worthless. Uh, anyway, so the next generation may abuse it. So the next generation may destroy it. Didn't you expect that, he says? Treasure in this world is destroyed always by moth and rust. So anyone who has any wisdom will store up their treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Where's your treasure? What's the most precious thing to you? What are you laboring and toiling in this world for? Your house? Your family? Your reputation? Your work? They will go. The lasting significance of our lives is the souls that we touch. Is the work that we do out of reverence for God. Is the things that we do that Jesus looks upon and smiles and prepares to say, well done. Because everything else will go. Jesus says, with the writer to Ecclesiastes, we must think. We must develop wisdom. But it must be wisdom which sees eternity. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Think carefully, critically about how you're leading your your life. And then, he says, you will be able to think and it will not lead you to despair. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to take bread and wine in communion. Those are solid assurances to us. The resurrection to eternal life. Jesus himself said, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Just in a moment of silence, ask the Lord whether we are investing in his kingdom. Oh Lord, we pray, give us wisdom. There is no point in embracing folly, Lord. We need your wisdom. Wisdom which sees eternity. So that we can not live in despair. Pour out your wisdom on us. Renew our minds, we pray. Help us to see that we need you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.